thank you for <clears throat> awesome time of worship and probably want to do it service, so I'm not going to tell you a joke this morning, but I do want you to pull this out. Um, I'm a big fan of the Jesus Soda Survey. We got Mr. Soda Man back there and Denny Empey. What I'd like you to do right now is best you can, either mentally or, or just, if you have a pencil or pen, fill it out. I want you to see what your answer would be now, and then we're going to check what your answer is going to be at the end of the service. Let's see if there's a change in this. I, I don't believe right now that there's any more important message than you're going to hear right now. And uh, I think it, it is the message of the hour, at least for the American church. Uh, we started last week a new series on real Christianity, and this is, this is the heart of it right here. And so I would really appreciate your fullness of attention because this is, like I said, this is it. This is the heart. This is the essence of Christianity. We'll get through most of it today, and we'll have to finish it up in weeks following so I, I've entitled the message this morning, The Most Important Thing. The Most Important Thing. Lord, I just thank you for each and every single person here. I believe that you've drawn them here. They're here for a reason. And I know, Holy Spirit, without you working in a mighty way, nothing's going to happen of any eternal value at least. So I just ask that you would manifest yourself now. Not only that you would fill me and that I, I would truly speak your words, but you would just pervade this place. Satan would have no place whatsoever. And that truth would be spoken, truth could be received, and truth could set free. So I'm thanking you for what you're going to accomplish now, and I just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please listen now to this video very closely, and then we'll discuss it. It's very easy to get up and say, I'm a Christian. It's very easy to get up and say, I believe the Bible from cover to cover. It's very easy to get up and say, I'm an evangelical believer. I'm an orthodox, so I'm something else. But do you have it really in your heart? Have you really been born again? Are you a new creation in Christ Jesus? Have you said, I'm willing to deny myself and take up the cross and go even to the cross with Christ, if that's what it means, to be a born-again believer and Christian? Now, when Jesus said this to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was no ordinary person. He was a ruler. He was a senator. In the parliament of that day, he was also a theological professor. He fasted two days a week. He spent two hours every day at the temple in prayer. He tithed all of his income. And most churches would have been glad to have him. But Jesus said, Nicodemus, that's not enough. You're a senator, member of the great Sanhedrin, a powerful man in Jerusalem. You're a theological professor. You have all the outward trappings of a believer and a Christian, but that's not enough. You must be born again. And Jesus didn't say you ought to be born again. 
He said, you'll have to be born again if you're to get to the kingdom. In other words, Jesus is talking about that it's easy to profess being a Christian, but it's a different matter to really know Jesus Christ down in your heart. It isn't enough just to profess Christianity and have some of the outward trappings of Christianity. You must know the Christ of Christianity for yourself. You must be born again. I've always appreciated his message because he cuts it straight. Sadly, rarely do you see it cut straight now but we're going to cut it straight this morning. You know, if I was Satan, the one doctrine I would attack more than any other doctrine is a necessity to be born again. And you say, well, why would I attack that doctrine? Well, I'll tell you why I attack that doctrine, because you see, it's true. The Bible tells us that God loves you. It is absolutely true that God loves you. But the Bible also says that man is in deep, deep trouble. In fact, the book of Romans, the great theological treatise of the Apostle Paul, he writes in in, in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, we've all sinned. Now, we don't like that word. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all been in rebellion to the great creator of the universe. We've been in rebellion to him, and we have sinned, and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us in Romans that we earn a wage for it. You know what that wage is? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, the wages of our rebellion, the wages of missing the mark is death. The death being spoken there, by the way, is the second death. The first death is physical death. The second death, though, is soul death. It's the death of your soul in hell for all of eternity. Now, I'm fond of reminding us, statistically, one out of one people die. So that means everyone here is going to have to face death. Every single one of us is going to have to deal with our mortality, and sooner than most of us think. I just had someone come up to me this morning and say, remember the person I was talking to you about? Well, he's dead. He just had a massive heart attack last night. See, that could happen to any one of us right here, right now. We could have a massive heart attack, and that's why you got a defibrillator. James, the half-brother of Jesus, spoke these very sobering words in James chapter 4 and verses 13 and 14. Skip, can you put those up? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mere mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. You know, the question is not, am I going to die physically? The question is, where am I going to spend eternity? And Romans 6.23 makes it crystal clear that if I die in my sins, if you die in your sins, then you will spend eternity in hell, separated from God. Now you understand what Satan's real goal is. You know what Satan's real goal with respect to you and with respect to me? He'd love nothing more for us to die physically in our sins. Because if I die physically in my sins and you die physically in your sins, God has no choice but at judgment day to cast you and to cast me into hell. There is no choice whatsoever, and we will experience soul death there. But see, here's the good news. The apostle Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that God is patient 
and he does not want anyone to perish. So you know, when it comes to seeking a relationship, when it comes to desiring to have a relationship, the problem isn't God. Did you, can you believe it? I, I mean, I still can't get over it. God wants to have a relationship with Frank Ray. Some of you are laughing about that, but it's true. And you know what's even funnier? God wants to have a relationship with you. Isn't that something? I mean, I hope we never get over that. God seeks to have a relationship with each and every one of us. In fact, many of us have memorized probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know, we today have taken love and we make it sentimental emotionalism, but it's not that at all. It does something. It does something good. It cares. And in this case, 2,000 years ago, in the person of Jesus Christ, God jumped into human skin. Can you believe it? And he allowed himself to be crucified between two thieves. You say, why would he do that? Because he loves you. And he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves me. And he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't stand it that we were separated from him. And he did everything he could with that cross to span earth and heaven. So please understand, God wants to have a relationship with you. And John 3.16 makes it clear that if I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I won't perish, you won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. Now, please listen up, because as far as I know, this is really not talked about much in church at all, at least in the American church. The Bible tells us that there are only two realities. Did you know that? There's God's reality, and God's reality is spelled right out here in the Bible. And then there's Satan's reality. You know what Satan's reality is? Satan's reality is everything that you see out there. It's the world system, was what the Bible calls it. In fact, now listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. We're told this. Satan is the God of this world. A lot of people are surprised when they hear that. It's right there in Scripture. Satan is the God of this world. And you know what he seeks to do? He seeks to blind your mind and my mind to truth. Right now, he is seeking. That's why I pray, and I try to get as many people as I can praying, because Satan seeks to blind every single person here, every person out there, to the truth. Because, you see, he wants you to die in your sins. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more sobering than that Scripture, and there's nothing more terrifying than that Scripture. And so when it says Satan is the god of this world, it means that he has developed every philosophical system that you can think of. For example, let me just give you some of the philosophies. Be successful. Who do you think came up with that one? That's Satan. Be successful in this world. Achieve the American dream. Who do you think came up with that one? Satan did. The one who dies with the most toys wins. Who do you think came up with that one? The goal of life is to be happy. That comes right directly from the pit of hell. And here's the biggest lie of all. All religions lead to God. All religions lead to God. What What a bunch of malarkey. All religions do not lead to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Wow, that is sincerely from the pit of hell. I could go on. 
The Bible, though, tells us that Satan is behind every world system, every world philosophy. And you know what his goal simply is? His goal is to get you and me to focus on this world, to really believe that it matters, to try to make our mark in this world, and to grab all that we can get, as much as we can get. That is what Satan wants to do. And then when you die, you spend eternity separated from God. You know, God, though, gives us a completely different reality. We talked about it last week. I've talked about it for several weeks. You know what God's reality is? You remember what he said? If you can look at it in Second Peter chapter 3, it said he's going to take a, a big can of gasoline one day. Remember that? He's going to pour it on the earth. He's going to pour it on the universe. He's going to light a match and poof, you're going to have a massive bonfire. Everything is going to burn. Everything that you can see, the chairs that you're in, this building, your cars. Can you believe it? Your car. Your golf clubs, your boat, your skis, oh my goodness. All of it's going to burn. All of the titles and degrees, hundreds of thousands of dollars students are in debt. And you know what? Your little degree is going to burn up. Everything is going to burn up. And you know what the Bible says then? It says that God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus reigning. And you know what? You're either going to be with Jesus, reigning with him, or you're going to be separated from him for all of eternity. Now, these are two starkly different realities. And you know what just breaks my heart almost every day is I just see how Satan is blinding so many people. And they're just wasting their life. No, just wasting their life on something that's going to burn up on the temporal. Well, now we get to the subject at hand this morning. The necessity of being born again. You see, without being born again, you can't see real reality. You'll, you, you'll remain blinded. And there's no more important doctrine than to be born again. And do you know what is really sad to me? I, I'm a preacher. The vast majority of American churches today That's why I had to find a Billy Graham 1970 clip for you. But most preachers won't even talk about the term born again. You hear all kinds of excuses. Well, you know, it's an outdated term. It's misunderstood. It is too controversial. No one understands it. People feel condemned by the term. I could go on. But you know what? The reality is that term is so important that Jesus Christ used it. Let's look at John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 9 just for a moment. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus said. You know, Billy Graham had it right. Nicodemus was a well-connected man. He was a senator of his day. He was a religious leader. He was famous and he was wealthy. He went to church many times a week. He tithed. He prayed. He fasted. He even taught Sunday school. And as Billy said, most American churches would have loved to have Nicodemus. But you know what? Jesus blew his socks off. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. It blew his mind. I bet you it blows a lot of our minds. Jesus was telling Nicodemus that if he were to die right then and there, he would die in his sins, and he would spend eternity in hell. Can you believe that, a Pharisee? Spending eternity in hell? Now, it's verse 5 that is of special interest to us this morning. Skip, can you put up verse 5 of John chapter 3? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born of water and spirit. So Jesus defines what is born again. Two things are absolutely required if you're going to be born again this morning. You must be born of water, and you must be born of the Spirit. I really want to focus in on born of water. There's been a lot of confusion about what born of water is. Some say, well, he's speaking of Christian baptism. Well, that can't be possible because Christian baptism hadn't even occurred yet. He couldn't be speaking about Christian baptism. Yeah, many, many people will be teaching you're born again, you know, when you get baptized as an infant. That is simply not true. Baptism is not a part of being born again. The thief on the cross, if you want proof, the thief on the cross, one of the thieves actually looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Tonight, today, you will be with me in paradise. I guarantee you that thief was not baptized. Now, another interpretation of born of water is it speaks of a pregnant mother's water being broken if the baby is being born. That's possible. So what he's really saying is, is Nicodemus, in order to be born again, you need to be born of a human mother. That's pretty obvious. I don't think he's probably saying that. I think contextually, you know what Jesus is really talking about? If you look at John chapter 1, I think he's talking about John the Baptist's baptism. Skip, can you put up the picture? Does anybody know? Here we got John the Baptist in the wilderness. He's a wild man. I don't think America could handle him, quite honestly. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. You know what the heart of Jesus' message was? Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Skip, can you put that up? This is Jesus. If you got your Bible, red letter edition here. The time has come, he said, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near. What does Jesus say? Repent and believe the good news. Do you know what it means to really repent? In fact, that word is not even used. I was looking it up at all last night. It's amazing how preachers today, because you see, it might hurt your poor little psyche. You just can't handle that. But you know what it means to repent? It means to change your mind. 
It means you thought one way about something, suddenly the light bulb in and you think something differently about that. Now, in a religious sense, in a Christian sense, what Jesus says, you need to repent. When John the Baptist said that you need to repent, what he was saying is, is you needed to keep trusting and quit trusting in the world and what you thought about the world and how the world could give you life. Maybe it's your job, maybe it's sex, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's rock and roll, maybe it's your family. But you need to repent of that, thinking that's going to give you life or just being religious. And you need to turn instead and trust in Jesus Christ. And realize that he and he alone can give you life. He alone can make you right with God the Father. So, so for Nicodemus, here's what it meant when Jesus said to him that night, you need to repent. Nicodemus, you need to repent of being a child of Abraham. You see, back 2,000 years ago, the Jews thought, wow, if I'm a physical child of Abraham in some way, if I'm blood-related, well, then I'm good with God. I'm going to be acceptable to God. Jesus said, you need to repent of that thinking, Nicodemus. You need to repent of being religious. If there was ever a religious person and who should have made it into heaven, it should have been Nicodemus. I mean, this guy's going to church all the time, at least three times a week. He's fasting. He's tithing. I mean, he, this, this guy is religious. But Jesus says, you need to repent of that. You need to turn from that. You need to turn from that thinking. Nicodemus was relying on his wealth. Do you know back 2,000 years ago, we still believe it today, in a lot of realms of Christianity. But Nicodemus believed that because he was wealthy, that proved he was acceptable to God. And you know what Jesus said? Ding, thanks for playing. There's one guy that's got it down. Nicodemus had to repent. He had to repent from this thinking that that somehow was going to save him and make him right with God. Instead, he had to completely give those things up and be willing to and just trust in Jesus and follow him and realize that only Jesus could give him life. Only Jesus could satisfy his soul. Only Jesus could connect him to the Father. Now I want you to know something. Jesus tells us that there's a cost. There is a cost to true repentance. And no one wants to talk about this. Let's look at Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 25. This at all is just missed. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. Now, I love that. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. You know, people loved Jesus initially. You know why? Because he did a lot of miracles. He fed you. Who doesn't want free food, huh? I mean, he did a lot of cool stuff. Healed people, walks on water. I mean, this is a fabulous show. And everybody's attracted to him. But you know what? Jesus is just the opposite of the modern-day American preacher. We're interested in filling the seats, and what does Jesus do? He empties them. The moment he opens his mouth, people start leaving. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Now he's going to thin the crowd out. Watch this. Can you imagine hearing this? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and it was not able to finish. 
Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, he cannot be or she cannot be my disciple. Wow. You don't hear that. Count the cost. You see, it's absolutely true. I want, to, I want to be clear. Now listen to this last part here. It is absolutely true that salvation is a free gift, but that's only half the truth. You know what the other half the truth is? The other half the truth is it will cost you everything to receive the gift. It will cost you everything. Let me, let me illustrate this way. See if you can grab this. Let's say that your heart Your physical heart is growing weaker and weaker. You're becoming more and more sickly. You're getting to the point where your heart is unable to pump blood throughout your body. You're going to die unless you can get a new heart. However, there's a very rich man, and he's very healthy. He's a young man, and he hears about your plight. And he offers to let you use his heart to do the work for both of you. Now, he's rich enough. He can afford all the surgery. He can afford the doctors. He can afford the hospital bills. And he's healthy enough to do it. But there's one catch. The only way you can have his heart work for you is you have to have a tube go from his heart and attach it to your heart. So if you want life, you can have it for free. But from now on, wherever he goes, you must go. The gift of life, this gift of life he's offering you is absolutely free. But it's going to cost you everything that you have. You will no longer be able to go wherever you want to go. You will be totally subject to his will. Salvation, Jesus offered on the cross, is an absolutely free gift. But it is going to cost you. It's going to cost me everything. You see, the Bible says that what Jesus hung on that cross, he was buying us. He was buying you, and he was buying you, and he was buying you by his precious blood. There's no greater price. Jesus, the God of the universe, had to pay for your ransom and my ransom, for my sin and your sin, with the precious blood. And now he owns you, if you want that life. You must be completely and totally be willing to be subject to his will. Now that's the true gospel. And it's virtually never preached. Virtually never preached on television. Most megachurch pastors wouldn't even touch it. Their gospel is watered down. Paul calls it, in fact, another gospel in Galatians because they're not going to tell you that there's a cost. And we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come. We call it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a name for it, cheap grace. He called it Christianity without the cross. And that's no Christianity at all, whatsoever. Well, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you, and I want to end by telling you a true story. This story comes from David Platt's book, Follow Me. Skip, can you put it up? Now, I want you to not think that, you know, Pastor Frank is some whack job. That book there, I'm going to challenge you to read. Everything that I'm telling you or it's going to tell you is basically in that book. David Platt is extremely well. He's with Francis Chan. They have a discipleship ministry together. But I really want to challenge you because, see, he's going to show you in that book in a much deeper fashion the superficiality of American Christianity and what is being offered. 
And so if you really want to dig into this, and I, I suggest you do because see, your soul's at stake and my soul's at stake. I'm willing to lay my job on the line right now to tell you the truth because I know this isn't what everybody wants to hear. Everybody wants to feel good right now. I do want you to feel good, but you've got to feel bad before you can feel good. You've got to feel bad. You've got to deal with the truth before you can actually feel good. So let me tell you this true story. It's not my story. David Platt tells a story. And uh, it's near the beginning of the book. And he talks about a girl by the name of Ion. And Ion's family, she and her family, they're 100% Muslim. And what he means by that is her personal identity, her familiar honor job, and her social status. They were all deeply intertwined with Islam. Simply put, if Ion were to ever leave Islam, she would essentially be giving up her life. If her family ever heard or found out that she would leave Islam, they would slit her throat without hesitation or without question. Now imagine you had the opportunity to share Jesus Christ, the good news, with Ion. How would you do it? Well, most of us would start out by telling Ion, well, you know what? Jesus loves you. God loves you. God loves you so much, he came in the person of Jesus Christ, and he died on the cross for your sins, so that you could have a relationship with God. And as you're telling her this, and it's true, you notice that her heart begins to soften. And she's really, you know, listening and whatnot. Yet as she begins to contemplate what you're saying, you notice that she begins to tremble. And she's beginning to think about, well, what is it going to cost me to follow Jesus? And with fear in her eyes and trembling in her voice, she says, well, how do I become a Christian? Now, you have two options here in response to her. You can tell her how easy it is to become a Christian. You can tell her that, you know, you need to assent to certain truths, and then you need to repeat this special prayer. And after you've done that, you're good to go, and you'll be in heaven when you die. That's option number one. Now, there's a second option. The second option is that you tell I on the truth. You can tell Ion that in the gospel, Jesus is calling you to die, literally. You just read it there, all right? Die to your life, die to her life, die to her family, die to her friends, die to her earthly, worldly future, and in dying, Ion, you will live. You will live forever with Jesus. You will be part of an eternal family. You will know a joy a joy that you've never known, and you have a future awaiting you that is beyond comprehension. Ion thinks about it, and then she makes her choice. She chooses Jesus, and you know what? It cost her, because today she's on the run. She is on the run. I want to tell you something. She's more alive than she ever was before in Islam. Much more alive. And when you choose Jesus, you're far more alive than anything in this world could ever give you. Jesus said, if you're going to be born again, you must repent. You and I must repent. 
That means we must die to this world, to the things of this world, anything that this world offers. And we must run headlong after Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm holding on to you because I believe in you and you alone is only life. Only you can cleanse me. Only you can forgive me of my sin. And give me an eternal relationship with you. Only you can do it. I'm going to ask you right now. Have you truly, truly come to the point in your life where you've repented and have run and you're just totally grasping Jesus? If you haven't, now is your time. It says in the book of Hebrews, today is the day of salvation. You might not hear that call tomorrow, but now is the time. Now is the time to make that decision if you haven't. You can make it right now. It's not special words we're going to learn. It's, it's a heart transaction. It's a heart transaction. And even while this last song is being prayed, you can make that heart transaction. You can repent and say, Jesus, I'm turning from all of what I've been ever holding on to, I'm, and I'm running and I'm holding on to you for life and to make me right with the Father. Lord, I know the Spirit of God's moving right now on hearts. I pray no one resists you now because it's the stupidest thing we can do is to resist the beautiful Holy Spirit who wants to give each one of us life. Oh, Holy Spirit, be free with each and every person here. As we sing this last song, may you do incredible business. May the angels sing as hearts begin to turn towards you right now. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen. Faithful. Amen. So up in my life, I've been so faithless, and yet he is faithful. And you sense the Holy Spirit just moving on your heart. We want to come up here and talk with you about Jesus, about eternal life. There is baptism class. I know there are some of you that have made that decision. You've truly repented. You've turned away, and now you're turning towards Jesus and looking for him and him alone. If you're interested in being baptized, it's going to be great next. I can't wait. Baptism Sunday is always an awesome thing to hear those testimonies. There's going to be class right after the the, the service, uh, Tom Patterson will be leading it over in the old building in the large conference room, large ministry room, whatever that is. Okay. <laughs> now how do you fill this out? Take a look at it again. How do you really fill this out? Are you able to now? We'd love to talk to you about that also. Denny's in the back, by the way. If you want to get involved in Jesus' soda survey, you want to touch lives for all eternity, great ministry. Great, great ministry. Please pick up the chairs after. And uh, it's a beautiful day to enjoy the Lord. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. And above all, may you truly have a repentant heart. That is completely and totally trusting in him. God bless you and take care. Hi, I'm Jeff Eckstein, one of the pastors here at Bethlehem Community Church. Welcome to our Sunday podcast, coming to you from the town of Bethlehem in upstate New York in the USA. Bethlehem Community Church is an independent, non-denominational, Bible-based evangelical church 
that includes people with backgrounds from many denominations. We believe that it is only through the love of the Father, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can come into a personal relationship with God. We are people truly seeking a deeper intimacy with God and with one another. If you'd like to know more about our church, please visit our website at www.bccdelmar.org. There you'll be able to find our statement of faith, as well as more about the ministry of Bethlehem Community Church. You'll also be able to submit prayer requests as we are called to pray with and for you. We also would love to hear your story and how you found our podcast and where you're listening from. So please visit our website and send us an email. Again, it's bccdelmar.org. That's bccdelmar.org. Thank you for joining us as we continue our pursuit of knowing God and making Him known.